I'm Audrey Hollenberg Duffy. And I'm her husband, Tim Hollenberg Duffy. We are a married couple doing pastoral ministry together under the faith umbrella of Anabaptism and Radical Pietism, more specifically in the Church of the Brethren, and most importantly, for Jesus. We've always enjoyed chats about faith life because we found in each other a companion that gets us, even when it doesn't feel like we fit in the boxes of American life or mainstream American Christianity. We believe the church is crucial to faith and practice, and yet also accept that religious institutions are crumbling. We believe being disciples of Jesus Jesus rarely fits a pre-made container. So join us for our meanderings as we try to find a faithful Jesus way forward. Welcome to this episode of Coffee with the Pastors. Yeah, welcome back from our summer hiatus. Yeah, it's been a long summer. Been a little busy in the <laughs> HT household. <laughs> yes, it has. But as we always do at Coffee with the Pastors, Audrey, in midst of all of this busyness, have you seen God recently? Well, yeah, actually, it's been busy in our lives, but quiet at church. Mm. And so we intentionally decided to take advantage of the slower pace that often happens at the church over the summer. And in worship, we're doing some in, like contemplative practices. We're doing Lectio Divina as a part of the, the service and inviting people to share a word of God that has been given to them as a part of worship right there in the moment. And it's not very often that you get that kind of immediate connection with one another and, and hearing of what God is speaking into your midst. Uh, so that's that has been a nice reminder that when we come to worship, we're expecting to be in God's presence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes we forget that, which is a little silly since... The whole point is worshiping God, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's been nice to hear how people are connecting with the the practice of Lectio Divina and hearing what God has to say to them in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So y- you pointed to that, that softness, uh, that quietness of worship. I'm seeing God just now coming out of summertime and some of the Holy Spirit stirrings, aggravations, or whatever you might want to call it. Uh, Some of them came out of annual conference. Several of our folks were at the Church of the Brethren annual conference this year and had some re-inspiration on issues related to peacemaking and gun violence. And I'm interested to see uh, how we as people of faith might engage some of those things. And also just some simple things related to hospitality and and fellowship and renewing our connections with each other because church is a place of connection even when you live on the Washington Beltway and it's hard to connect, right? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm seeing it in a slower pace and you're seeing it in the anticipation of busyness. (laughs) (laughs) There are rhythms to life, aren't there? And God can be in both. (laughs) Yes. So we're um, diving into a new um, four-week series Mm -hmm. as we... uh, Come back from the summer hiatus, we're going to be taking a deeper look at Audrey's doctoral research and break that down into uh, several weeks. But Mm -hmm. today we're going to talk specifically about the problem Mm -hmm. that Audrey was uh, attempting to do something about or address, address, manipulate in or work Mm -hmm. in the system about, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to say. In her doctoral program at Uh, Wesley Theological Seminary here in D.C., she was asked to name an observable problem in her 
local congregation uh, or and or more broadly in society. So Audrey, tell us a little bit about the, the problem that you decided to, to think about in your doctoral research. Well, I, I wanted to keep it something really practical and, and yet pervasive. Mm. And so when I was thinking, of course, I started my program at Wesley right at the beginning of the pandemic. Okay. I literally, I got the letter of acceptance and then decided I was going there. And like a month later, everything shut down. So I, you know, was in the midst of trying to figure out what it meant to be the church when we were apart. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that I noticed was that people were disconnected from one another. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it wasn't just because of the pandemic that we were having a hard time relating to one another. And really that, it felt like that was the root of so many different problems that we're experiencing in congregations and in denominations right now is that, and outside of churches for that matter. But of course, my work was in congregations. And so that was that was the problem that I was seeing in multiple layers and, and in multiple levels of church life is that we are, are not as intimately connected as I think is intended of people who gather together in a church. And so that was the problem that I identified and felt like I could, could specifically address in our home congregation. Mm -hmm. um, even though Oakton is not a congregation that I would say is particularly conflictual, uh, we've actually, we've uh, celebrated them on multiple occasions on how they handled the pandemic when, when I, you know, having conversations with other clergy and peers that talked about just the way it tore at the fabric of their community. That's not what I was mm -hmm. seeing at Oakton, but there was still, because of some of the factors that are contributing to separation from one another, that was still something that I wanted to address. Mm -hmm. Yeah, disconnection doesn't necessarily lead to conflict all right. the time. Sometimes mm -hmm. it just leads to nothingness, yeah. <laughs> right? Or, or, yeah, lack of intimacy, which just makes the church feel irrelevant. Yeah. So you identified um, in your research a few major um, contributing factors to this disconnection problem, and you got a good laugh at your uh, research presentation months ago, and you named them the unholy trinity. That's right. And you've alluded to already a, a couple of them mm -hmm. a little bit, but tell us about your unholy trinity of disconnection and separation. Yeah, so so one of the things that you have to keep in mind when you're doing research is you have to limit the scope. And so mm -hmm. while I could name probably a whole bucket full of contributors to the problem of disconnect, I chose three that felt most relevant to my congregation, to the church in general, that were particularly problematic. And so mm -hmm. the three that I identified, of course, I named one being the pandemic. Mm -hmm. While mitigations that we did were necessary, they, they still created disconnect mm -hmm. because we were apart. We okay. weren't sharing physical space for an extended period of time. So, so pandemic, pandemic is one. Mm -hmm. Another being political discourse and particularly the the nature of the polarized conversation that we see in politics and how that has impacted mm -hmm. church life. Mm -hmm. And the third being social media and how social media has attempted to 
create community, but it has been occasionally false community and in fact has done the exact opposite of what we want in community. Mm-hmm. So that's the unholy trinity <laughs> that I specifically addressed as contributing to the problem. So the unholy trinity is the pandemic, social media, and political polarization. polarization. Yeah. Okay. Pandemic, social media, political polarization. I, I want to dive into a little bit more deeply your observations about those things. And I think I want to start with the pandemic. Sure. Because, yeah, we might think that we're coming out of the pandemic, but a lot of those effects have have really stuck, right? Oh, yeah. And so I know the pandemic was particularly isolating right. for a lot of people. Is that is that kind of what you're what you're getting at with how the pandemic affected our disconnections? Right. Yeah. So before I jump specifically into pandemic, I'll say this: the unholy trinity, they're intimately connected. And so you Mm -hmm. can't really talk about one without talking about the others, which Mm -hmm. is what I think makes them so unholy (laughs) is that they feed off of each other. Because with the pandemic, we physically isolated from one of one another, but we also then kind of ideologically separated from one another during a period of time. Whereas when we were going out in public to the workplace or to our congregations, Mm -hmm. oftentimes we were interacting with people that might be different from us. When we were in isolation, we were often connecting with people that were more like-minded. And so we, in some ways, created some echo chambers that further impacted the political polarization and some of the problems that social social media had. So that's like those three things interact. But specifically, the issue with the pandemic that was really hard was the way it impacted mental health. Mm-hmm. And that was a concern that I know psychologists had at the very beginning as we were talking about needing to spend time apart from one another to keep the spread of COVID down was that it was going to impact mental health in a really significant way. And it did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, 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 like across demographics, across ethnicities, and it kind of hyper highlighted some of that, the injustices there mm-hmm. of access to things. One of the particular studies that I looked at as I was thinking about pandemics impact on mental health Depending on what mental health concern a person has, the tendency can either be to hyper-attach to people Mm. or to completely isolate themselves from people. Mm -hmm. And so those people that tend to isolate themselves from people, the just kind of chance interactions that would kind of force you to come out of that shell, they were gone, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? These people were truly alone. For extended periods of time. And so the tendency that the already natural tendency to withdraw from people was then underscored by the literal fact that you would go for long periods of time without seeing people. Sure. And so it just kind of continued to separate people. So yeah, so not only were we literally apart, obviously that just has a natural disconnect from people, but then there were contributing factors like mental health that made it even harder for some people to connect with one another. Sure, sure. And it was especially difficult in the church to figure out 
what were the modes that could help keep us connected in any which way and right. and depending on where you lived in the country you found different different avenues to do that i know oakton had our our little coffee time that we'd gather on sunday mornings on zoom and then mm-hmm. we'd have the the youtube worship video that anybody could watch mm-hmm. but there was a very different level of connection between people that were just watching a a video and the people that were participating in Zoom coffee hour or any of the Bible studies that we were offering on Zoom during the week or any of the outdoor events that we were offering. Right. Right. I mean, you had opportunity to connect at different levels, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people, it just got hard. Well, especially as it find connection, as it lingered on, people got, we had a new word come out, Zoom fatigue. Sure. (laughs) Where, you know, I'm still Zoom. I know, team. right? I if if I have the option to participate in something virtually or in person, I'm going to choose the in person yeah. because. And if it's only virtual at this point in time, I'm I pretty unlikely. <laughs> I'm pretty unlikely to do it. Right. Yeah. So that that is. I mean, there's obvious reasons why the pandemic caused separation from one another. Just the yeah. very nature of not sharing physical space. And then there were some of these other factors yeah. that made it hard. So to. let's look at some of the other factors because you're right. They all kind of link together in in certain ways so um let's talk about social media yeah social media was meant to connect us wasn't it yeah and and so for <laughs> i think for a time it did and this is jonathan height is a social social psychologist mm-hmm. that i used a lot of his research in my paper um, and in my project and he he talked about the kind of formation of social media being, I think, fairly pure intentioned. And mm-hmm. so I think there was a time when social media did that. And you can I think you could still see glimpses of that even at the beginning of the pandemic. Hmm. There was lots of creativity about how to connect with one another through social media. Sure. Um, you had like watch parties and we utilized those at, at the church where you could watch the worship video together on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And so in real time, you could chat and people were watching it together. Mm-hmm. There's some of that that still kind of lingers. And yeah, it's, I think at, at its founding, social media was intended to be kind of a mediator connecting with one another. But usually it was people you already knew. Sure. Find an old high school friend. Exactly. Or, and or stay connected like even though you are physically not right. not sharing and space anymore. I guess anymore. particularly it was, it was college students right right, who who wanted to stay connected post-graduation or use it as just a uh a social exchange platform right that would aid in their personal connections not something else yeah yeah so originally at least facebook when it was founded to get a facebook page you had to have a college email address right right and so i remember you know we were on the front end of, of myspace well, we don't need to talk about MySpace. <laughs> MySpace was an open source platform. Um, but e- even MySpace, was a, you p- became friends with people you were already friends with. It was a way to yeah. continue to engage people you already knew. And with Facebook, because it was a closed source, you know, it was for a particular group of people. Um, originally, it was, it was similar in that you were connecting with people you most likely already knew or you you shared some common uh, space with and all all it was was posting pictures and updates mm-hmm. when when it started mm-hmm. i think my first year on facebook was the year that 
Facebook became open to anyone. Mm. You didn't have to have a college email anymore. As that happened, they also realized the how they could commodify Facebook. Mm. And so it became about advertising. Mm-hmm. How do you monetize things? Jonathan Haidt talks about the significant change that happened with social media when the like button was added. Because mm-hmm. then you could uh, create algorithms based on what people were liking mm-hmm. and use that to monetize advertising, Mm -hmm. um, learn about those people that were using Mm -hmm. social media, and then gear what they see towards what they're most going to like. What Mm -hmm. they found, and I I think originally, I want to be really clear, I think originally this was not meant to be problematic. But what they found is that the, the posts that people are most often interacting with are the ones that are polarizing, mm. that are most angry mm-hmm. and most visceral, mm-hmm. um, either because someone other than you said something that you so vehemently disagree with that you feel like you have to respond. Those were the ones that were getting the most interaction. And, and so, so now we have hatred on social media, which goes against the very point of the connection it was supposed to create. Yes, but what apart. it does is it keeps people on the platform, right? <laughs> Angry and on the platform. Angry and on the platform. Or, yeah. Hmm. Right? And so social media has, I think, kind of unintentionally become a place where there is just so much anger and divisiveness, which, of yeah. course, that translates into my third unholy trinity political polarization yes yes so, yeah, we... <laughs> if you go on if you go on social media now half of your posts are advertising a quarter is a uh, uh, political stuff from friends you might not really be even that close with and then right. the other quarter is your cat pictures and stuff huh? right. yes and i try, I try to like <laughs> live in the cat picture <laughs> funny funny memes world of facebook um and that's not to say like they're so I try to be careful because there there are still good things that can happen through these platforms. Sure. We used them. I mean, the pandemic drove us to the platforms yes. to to use YouTube and Facebook and mm-hmm. Zoom and, and, and other kind of tech. And in some ways, using those in-house was appropriate and fine. Right. Um, it even for some congregations became a bit of a witness tool to get other people watching and engaged. Um, my perspective from Oakton was it was only a witness tool if one of my people invited somebody else that they knew to watch it. Right, or not, shared it. Yeah, yeah, not so much a uh, just catching random viewership online. We didn't pay for advertising or anything to, no. to make that happen. Which Well, and every single church was doing it. Yeah, I <laughs> And mean, so people were being... Inundated yeah, our with atheist options. friends were just like, I ain't going on social media on Sunday morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so so there are still good things that can happen. And I think like the Me Too movement is an example of like social change that can happen through social media. And okay. so advocacy hmm. is still an option. What social psychologists like Jonathan Haidt are asking is do those good things outweigh the incredible damage that social media is doing. And for Jonathan Haidt, one particular study that he has done 
is looking at how social media has impacted adolescence and specifically adolescent girls mm. and specifically those that are already struggling with mental health concerns. Right. Um, cyberbullying, especially. Cyberbullying, yeah. So when we were growing up, bullies were a thing. Sure. <laughs> but you went home at the end of the day and you didn't have to still be in connection with your bully. Mm -hmm. You got a break. Mm -hmm. With social media now, you can go home and continue to be bullied. Even by like a stranger. I mean, the, oh, the yeah. whole concept of a troll right. right on social media is is not that necessarily it's the bully at school who follows you home. That's but right. Now you've got some you random know, person. A sixteen year old girl has some sixty nine year old dude out there uh, harassing her exactly because they think her political post is is goofy or right. uh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Other platforms like Instagram, where the whole idea is to post a picture. And mm. get as many likes as possible huh. is really problematic for adolescent girls who are going through just natural development insecurities about body changes and mm. persona. And it creates an unhealthy relationship with affirmation. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, some, it's not even necessarily about bad reactions to things. But adolescent girls can get overly dependent on positive affirmations, and the lack thereof becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. As we kind of, as I kind of edge into talking about political polarization and social media, what we've found is that social media has allowed particularly polarizing perspectives to have a platform where they wouldn't necessarily get much face time prior to social media. And so one of the things Jonathan Haidt talks about, specifically is related to how politics have played out, there's several problems that social media has created for political discourse. And one is the immediacy of mm. social media mm -hmm. and the virility of social media in that something can happen in Texas at a public school that in the matter of 24 hours is now knowledge throughout the entire country and mm -hmm. maybe globally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so something that otherwise would be a blip on the... 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah 20 years ago, um, now gets picked up by news sources. And because it's on social media, news sources are tuned into what's happening on social media sure. oh, they'll pick many? it up yeah and then it gets blown blown up and so you know something that is actually a small percentage of a perspective or an interaction is now known throughout the world sure and so it it kind of gives us a false impression of where people actually are jonathan Haidt believes that there is this exhausted middle that we don't see as on much media. on social media because it's those kind of more outrageous things that get uh, hyper attention. Mm. <laughs> There's even a tendency in those polls to attack people of their own area that because they're not far enough, far on enough. Extreme. Yeah, and so, so if somebody pops in and says something moderately progressive. Right. A progressive is going to challenge them or throw an arrow at them or a jab at them. Right. Um, either silencing them or pushing them further to the 
to an extreme to the to the pole right, right? totally and that happens on 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 both extremes all oh, yeah. the time oh yeah i mean i you can see it especially as you're gearing up towards election time mm -hmm. where someone might say something positive about a candidate on the other side and they get eviscerated sure by their party sure, sure. <laughs> right it's it's you need, you need to fall in line there is no middle right? right and and so we're being further pulled apart what the pandemic did was as I said earlier, it took away some of those spaces where common ground is often mm. necessary. Mm -hmm. So like the workplace where yeah. you may be working next to someone in a cubicle that has a completely different political perspective. But maybe it doesn't matter because you're working at uh, a tech firm. and right. <laughs> Yeah. And so you can build respect and relationship with someone and then find out later sure. that maybe they disagree politically. But you already have that relationship with them. And so there's a certain amount of benefit of the doubt that you right. give that person. And the same thing happens at church. You go, oh, yeah. We go fold clothes together for the Committee for Helping Others here in Oakton. And we never talked about politics. Right. Right. Exactly. We were just doing, doing something good together. And right. And so then the relationship becomes the primary mm. rather than perspectives. Uh, huh. And, and it, so it, it brings you closer to, together even though you may have significant differences in, in the way you view the world. Mm -hmm. um, it also gives opportunity for you to see someone, see something from another perspective mm -hmm. when you, you enter into a relationship and have given them the benefit of the doubt to mm -hmm. be in that connection. We used to talk, well, not used to, we still talk about some churches being purple. Yeah. Purple churches, right. red and blue mixed together, make purple and many churches are, are purple and they're healthy right i think they're healthier for it yeah i mean you don't have necessarily the same kind of echo chamber system at work and yet it's also a, a space for different cultures and different kinds of people to interact and serve god together right yep um on unusually things that they all agree on right, <laughs> right? people gotta eat people gotta be clothed that's right the, the only other thing i'll say about politics too is there there's this kind of cyclical pattern that's happening that as the you know the pandemic pulled people apart from one another as social media became a place where any kind of conversation was devoid of the relationship that's necessary to have comp complex conversations that has then fed into the discourse that we see coming out of politicians mouths because it has to be um, what people are want to hear, right? And so the discourse that's happening at the political level is becoming increasingly visceral and violent mm -hmm. towards one another. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of all feeding each other in a way that you can't fully parse out and you can't blame one section solely. Mm -hmm. They're all interacting with one another. And so as, as political discourse gets gets more kind of black and white mm -hmm. um there's less room for middle ground and working together and give and take mm -hmm. um you know the founding fathers depended on the slow deliberation mm. so that you didn't have um you know heat of the moment decisions being made sure that are not necessarily in the best interest of a country mm. and so 
that becomes problematic in the, the age of social media where there's an expectation of immediacy and sometimes appropriate answers to things need to take time mm-hmm. because you need that common ground working together that's not going right. to be immediate. Right. So I, Okay, so the unholy trinity, pandemic, social media, political polarization, I want to take that down into a local congregation just to explore what 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 does that actually look like on the ground then in in our communities of faith uh, obviously we've, we've i think we've talked about the pandemic effect um driving us into into virtual or no connection right right um you then also have social media factor taking us to a, a space of knowing where each other kind of stands and sits on this and taking some of those habits of jabbing Mm -hmm. um, at people and pushing people further out or silencing people. Some of those habits we've developed, I think, are now present in the church, which drives a disconnect. And then, of course, political polarization. Purple churches are harder to find now because churches feel like they They have have to to... stake a claim. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what we're finding is that people don't know how to then be in relationship with one another in a way that is authentic and vulnerable. Yeah. People are afraid to say things because they're afraid that if it comes out of their mouths, they're going to be attacked. They also then silence themselves, which means we're not getting to know one another in a, in a way that can course correct some of the disconnect. Yeah. And so for some, I think it's leading them to feel that the church is irrelevant. Yeah. Um, because there isn't this stepping in towards deeper relationship that there was at one point. When we talk next time, I want to talk a little bit more about what, why this is so problematic for the church. What is it about the church's DNA that this is such a problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and just to hint at it a little bit, the intimacy of relationships, the image of the body of Christ is essential to who we are as a church. Mm-hmm. And so if we are having this unholy trinity impact those pieces. Dismembering the body. Dismembering the body, then we we are not relevant as a church anymore. Wow. And so some people just decide that, what's the point? And they completely disengage themselves. And eventually you're going to give us a remedy for all of this too in the coming weeks. I am. Possibly. Possibly. One one of many. As I kind of said at the beginning, the, the nature of research is that you try to keep a limited scope. And so I'm only naming certain contributors to a problem and, and I'm going to give one solution that we worked at at Oakton to address it. Cool. Well, we look forward to hearing some more about that in the coming weeks. Yeah. So thank you for joining us today on this exploration. We welcome feedback and further conversation. If you'd like to reach out to us, feel free to message us at coffeewiththepastorspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, This has been Coffee with the Pastors. Live for the glory of God and our neighbor's good. The primary purpose of this podcast is for conversation and faith exploration. It is intended for private non-commercial use and does not necessarily reflect the opinion of any agency or organization. In this podcast, references were made to the following resources. The Doctor of Ministry Research paper, The Stories We Share, Cultivating Connection in the Church, by Rev. Dr. Audrey Hallenberg Duffy, Jonathan Haidt's research, and specifically these Atlantic articles. The Dangerous Experiment on Teen Girls, The Preponderance of the Evidence Suggests that Social Media is Causing Real Damage to Adolescents. Yes, social media really is undermining democracy despite what Meta has to say. 
and why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. It's not just a face. Check out The Atlantic for access to these articles. And research conducted by Carissa Dwiwardani, Andrew Shelton, and Alan Oda, discussed in their article, Attachment and Mental Health in the COVID-19 Pandemic, Post-Traumatic Growth, and Religion as Moderators. Check out these things for more information.